All right. It's good to see you all today. Um, the pulpit's a little different. The pulpit mics are gone. Um, we'll have the handheld today. All right. So if you are new here, uh, my name is Jay. I'm the lead pastor here at FLM. If you are new, it's great to have you with us. I always say this each week, but it's true. Uh, worship is always more enjoyable with more people. Um, so if you are new, stick around after. We do have snacks outside, so we'd love to have a chat and get to know you all. All right, uh, and just one more thing. The women's ministry or women's conference is coming up very soon. Uh, I'm so excited. I'm not just selling this because, you know, I have to sell it, but it, I'm really excited about the speaker. Uh, and I think if you visit or if you walk past the FLM room each Sunday from about 11.30 onwards, you can just feel the energy from the events team, the amount of work that they put into everything they do, it, it's it's quite phenomenal. Um, so thank you to the events team. Um, yeah, if you are a woman and you haven't signed up, please sign up ASAP. Uh, this is an awesome opportunity. All right, uh, we're going to be in Mark chapter 8 today, uh, verses 22 to 26. Mark chapter 8, verses 22 to 26. I'll give you guys a second to look that up. Mark chapter 8, verses 22 to 26. And the word of God reads, And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, in these short Four or five verses, uh, we see another healing in the ministry of Jesus in Mark's gospel. Uh, and Lord, once again, we ask for clarity in understanding what took place in these verses, uh, but also to understand the significance of what it means to us today. This is your living word, and it is the living God that we encounter as we unpackage the scriptures. And so, Lord, we pray to come away having encountered you truly, not just to gain knowledge, but more of you, Lord. And so, Lord, I pray more than ever that you would watch over the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> We're a fairly young congregation, I think, uh, but some of you guys are dating uh, within this church, some outside the church. Some of you guys are married and have been married for some time. Uh, but for those who are dating or are married or have dated in the past, uh, you'll notice, for the women at least, when you look at men, uh, we have certain qualities about us. I don't know if you can call it a quality, but certain things, attributes or character traits that seem to be synonymous amongst all men. Um, and I think it becomes more clearer than ever whenever they're watching a sporting event. Um, 
I am very much into combat sports. I like watching boxing and UFC, mixed martial arts. Uh, and when I watch with friends that share those same interests, uh, I notice that we all, in between rounds or after a fight, we're like, oh, this guy should have done this. This guy should have focused on his wrestling a bit more. This guy should have used his hands a bit more. Should have used his kicks a bit more. And what's ironic is none of us have ever actually been in a fight before. None of us have ever been hit before. We know nothing about fighting. But in that moment, suddenly we become experts in this field. Um, yesterday, I went on a date with my wife. We went to the city. And on our way home, uh, we, we, we received a call uh, from Pastor Alvin and another friend. And, you know, they wanted to meet up. And we met up. And where we were, they were playing the Australia versus France women's quarterfinal soccer match. And I noticed at halftime, full-time, at the end of first half extra time, at the end of second half extra time, in between the penalty kicks, you could hear the murmuring among the men. Oh, the coach should have done this. They should have implemented this strategy. Or why did France put their keeper on like before the penalty shootout? That's going to mess with the psychology. Like, suddenly, these people that have never watched, well, they've probably never watched, they look more like rugby fans rather than soccer fans, suddenly they become expert in all things soccer-related. And I think it's a guy thing. And I heard people criticizing the Australian coach, but the, the end of the matter was that, and I'm sure you all know, is we won. We won. Yeah, you, you can cheer for that. And it's ironic because everyone thinks that they know better. Everyone thinks that they, they know the formula. That it's either their way or the highway. But often what we find out is that there are many ways. And that's kind of what we're going to look at in today's passage. Because we know that salvation is by grace through faith. This is how we come to salvation. This is how we receive Christ. But we'll find that there's not always just the one formula to get to that place. Not always the one route, because people come from different walks of life. We have different backgrounds. We come from different cultures. The end goal is the same, but the way we get there for each person, the formula might be a little bit different. Now, in today's passage, uh, Jesus and his disciples, they, they arrive in a town called Bethsaida. And this name, if you've read through, if you've been cluey and been listening to our series in Mark's Gospel, this city will sound a bit familiar because a few chapters earlier in chapter 6, Jesus fed 5,000 people. And we saw in chapter 6 that after he fed 5,000 people, these 5,000, which was probably about fifteen to 20,000 if you include the women and children, they start swarming Jesus and the disciples. And it's at a point where they're, they're, they're actually physically in danger. When you've got 15,000 people all crowding around you, you're actually in danger of physically being crushed. And so Jesus, if you read in chapter 6, he organizes an emergency evacuation. He tells his disciples, get into the boat. You go on ahead, head to the town of Bethsaida, which is probably like 20 minutes away, not too far. You head on there first. I will meet you there. And then we saw in chapter 6 that they get onto the boat and what should have been like a very quick 15, 20-minute boat ride uh, goes on 
all night because the wind starts blowing against them. It should have taken 20 minutes, but it went from daytime all the way to evening. And then that was when we saw Jesus perform the miracle of walking on water. And when he gets into the boat with them, scares the living daylights out of them, gets into the boat with them, the wind stops, the storm stops. And instead of arriving at Bethsaida, they arrive somewhere else, a, a, a town called Gennesaret. And so that's where we first heard of Bethsaida. It was a town that they were meant to arrive at, that they never arrived at, and they arrive at it in today's passage. And Bethsaida, it was the hometown of Peter, Andrew, and Philip. It was at the northeastern end of the Sea of Galilee. It was a very multicultural town. So it was a mix of Jews and Gentiles. It wasn't really fully Jewish. It wasn't really fully Gentile either. It's kind of like Eastwood. If you go to Eastwood, you go to one side of the station, it's all Chinese restaurants. You go to the other side, it's all Korean restaurants. Um, that's kind of what Bethsaida was like. And when they arrive in this town, news has actually spread ahead of them. Uh, the people of the town hear that Jesus is coming to their town. And so there's a group waiting for Jesus the moment he lands. And this group has brought with them a blind man. And this blind man was probably a friend of theirs or a relative. And if you read through these short four or five verses, you'll find that in this short passage, Mark records very specific intentional details to help us understand what takes place in this encounter. This group of people are waiting for him. They've brought their friend. And they beg Jesus. What do they beg of Jesus? Mark says that they begged Jesus to just touch their friend. Can you just touch my friend? Not heal him, just touch him. And undoubtedly they heard about the divine power of Jesus. You know, if they hadn't heard about the healings and exorcisms, they would have heard about his creation power in chapter 6 because people from their town would have been part of the 5,000 that got fed by Jesus. They understood that Jesus had a special power. And they believed that Jesus could heal their blind friend. And they're under the belief that the way Jesus heals people is by touching them. We saw much earlier on in Mark's gospel, the woman who's hemorrhaging and bleeding, she said to herself, if I just touch his garment, I'm going to be healed. It was like a formula that they thought was the key to healing. And so they begged Jesus, can you touch our friend? Now there's a few more observations to be made about the details. Um, a few weeks ago, at the end of chapter 7, we saw someone else get healed. A deaf mute man. He was deaf and he probably had a speech impediment. Couldn't speak. And a group of people bring this man to Jesus. And this account, if you read at the end of chapter 7, it's pretty similar to today's passage in that a group of people bring their friend to Jesus and they beg, in the same way they beg Jesus to touch or heal their friend. They bring a deaf mute man at the end of chapter 7 and they beg Jesus on this man's behalf, can you heal our deaf mute friend? And there's nothing wrong with that. It's to be expected because it would be pretty cruel 
to tell a deaf mute man who can't speak, go on, tell him what you want. He can't talk. You can't even tell him, tell him what you want because he can't hear you. So at the end of chapter 7, this deaf mute man, you can understand why they don't get this man, why this man himself doesn't beg Jesus for help. But in today's passage, this man has no problem with his hearing. This man's got no problem with speaking. Whilst he can't see Jesus, there's nothing actually stopping this man from asking Jesus for help. In fact, if you read later on in Mark's gospel, you'll see another blind guy in chapter 10 by the name of Bartimaeus, blind as a bat. But he doesn't let anything stop him from crying out to Christ. He cries out the moment he hears that Jesus is within his vicinity. He doesn't even know where he is. He knows just he's in the neighborhood. He starts screaming at the top of his lungs, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. That's what Bartimaeus does. There's nothing stopping this blind man from asking Jesus for help. And yet, in today's passage, we find that it's not the blind man that begs, but his friends. Now, some might say this is the normal reaction of an unbeliever who doesn't possess faith, which I think it is. And so what we see in these verses is the inaction, the lack of reaction from the unfaithful man as opposed to the faithful actions of this group of men who believe in the power of Jesus, believe in it so much that they not only bring their friends to Jesus, but they intercede and beg on his behalf. And how does Jesus respond to this intercession? Verse 23 says that he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? Now, like I mentioned earlier, sometimes people have a very linear view on how you come to Christ, how you come to salvation. These friends had a very linear view on how you tap into the healing power of Jesus. They'd obviously heard about Jesus healing people in the past, you know, his creation power and feeding the 5,000, casting out demons. And after hearing all of these, all of these, you know, these rumors, these stories, these testimonies, in their mind, they'd conjured up this idea that the way you tip, uh, tap into the healing power of Jesus was through physical touch. Just touch him. But Jesus, in the way he imparts healing in today's passage, is very intentional because he wants to show them that it's not a set formula. It's not a super, you know, superstitious routine that is like you have to do things in this order in order to tap into the, 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 the divine healing power. But he heals this man in a different way. And like with last week's sermon, I think one of the things that we learn from this passage is this reiteration that it's not about piety. It's not about religion. It's not about a routine. It's not about a superstition. When it comes to healing, restoration, and salvation, it is always about a person, the person of Christ. And so Jesus, he does touch this man because he takes him by the hand. But the healing doesn't occur when he touches him. 
like his friends are expecting. But he takes this man's, I'm assuming he clasped his hands, like held his hands. I don't know if he interlocked fingers, but he, he grabbed his hands. And he led him outside the village, presumably where no one else was around. And remember, this guy's blind as a bat, can't see a thing, just living in darkness. And so as Jesus is leading him out of the village, he'd have to guide him. Like he wouldn't just drag him along, like just like tripping over, you know, hot potholes and banging against walls and corners. Like he would have said, oh, look, look, be careful. There's a, there's a hole there. Make sure you turn here. Careful of your foot. Careful. There's, there's like a jagged rock there. You don't want to step on that. He gives him instructions. And then they arrive outside. And then they come to a stop. And something terrifying happens. And I say it's terrifying. Now, like, I'll explain why. I don't know if this is true, but I used to watch like samurai movies where there'd be like a blind swordsman, or if you watch martial arts movies when you're young, you'd see these kung fu movies where it's like a blind master, but because he's blind, all these other senses have been like super heightened. I don't know if that's true. I'd imagine some of your senses would be heightened. I'd imagine your hearing would be heightened if you were blind. But imagine being led away by your friends. Or from, not by your friends, from your friends, by a complete stranger. A stranger that you know nothing about. Your friends are just like, this guy can help you. And then they bring you to him and this friend or this stranger grabs you by the hand and takes you outside into the middle of nowhere, away from your town, away from your family, into the desert. And suddenly you hear... And then you feel something wet hit your eyes. You hear a puh. And then something wet hit your eyes. You'd be like, no, he didn't. Surely he didn't do that. Verse 24, if you read, says that he looked up after this, after he got spat in, like his face. It says that he looked up. If you look up, where were you looking before? Down which meant that Jesus had to have come up to him and he's looking down at the ground. And so Jesus would have like bent down, looked up at him in the face, spat in his face. And the Greek verb that's used for spit is in the singular. So he only spat once, but there was enough saliva that he spat out that it covered both eyes. That is one massive loogie. That's a lot of saliva in one spit. And what a name as well. He spits in his face. And then he lays his hands on him. Now if someone spat in your face, beyond it being incredibly gross, what would your normal reaction be? Like, if I spat in my wife's face, she'd probably end up in jail and I'll probably be like six feet under. You'd be angry, wouldn't you? That that would be the law. If someone spat in your face, like even if they said it was for healing, therapeutic purposes, you'd be angry. But for this man, the moment he hears that sound, the spitting sound, his both eyes getting wet, maybe he did feel anger, but that anger dissipated very, very quickly. So much so that Mark doesn't even record it. Because for the first time, In so long, this man 
who lived in complete darkness, the moment that saliva, that spit hits his face, that darkness is pierced by the light of day. Suddenly, the darkness that he's lived in up until this point, it starts to get torn away and light starts shining through. Now, Jesus does something else that's a bit different in today's miracle. Because I've mentioned in previous passages where Jesus performs a healing miracle, I mentioned that healings are always instant. It's not a gradual process. It's not like I come back in one week and we'll check up on your condition. It's always an instant process. But it's not instant in today's passage. It is instant in the sense that like in the one encounter he gets healed, but it doesn't happen instantly. And another thing that's different is that when Jesus heals this man, he asks a question. How is that different? Because whenever Jesus heals earlier in Mark's gospel, doesn't ask a question, he issues a command. Whether any time he does something supernatural, Mark 1.25, when he heals, or rather exercises a demon and casts him out, Jesus issues the command, be silent, come out of him. Mark 1.41, the man with the shriveled hand, oh sorry, the, the, the leprous man, he says, be healed, be made clean. He issues a command. The man with the shriveled hand in chapter 3, stretch out your hand. Chapter 5, be healed of your disease. Little girl, I say to you, arise. And earlier on, uh, towards the end of chapter 7, when he healed the deaf mute man, about his deafness, he issues the command, be opened. Usually it's a command. But in today's passage, it's a question. And the question is, what do you see? What do you see? I just spat in your face. What do you see? And the man responds in verse 24. Looking up, he said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Now, this statement by this man, uh, it's kind of a giveaway that this man's blindness wasn't congenital. It wasn't from birth because he, he clearly knows what trees look like. Um, because you wouldn't use a tree as a descriptor or a simile if you had no idea what a tree looked like. Um, this man says, I see people walking, but it looks like trees. They look like trees. In other words, I can see, but it's not perfect. My vision is blurry and it's out of focus. I've been healed, but it's not a complete healing. It's a partial healing. And like I mentioned, Jesus does not heal partially, usually. Usually Jesus doesn't have a gradual healing over the, day, over the course of days, weeks, and months. And so we expect Jesus to finish the job, which he does in verse 25. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Now, this restoration of sight in the Greek, it, 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 it's kind of a way of saying that not just the sight was restored, but he could see from afar, meaning that his long-distance vision uh, was restored perfectly. It's just another way of saying he regained perfect 20-20 vision. And so having been healed, verse 26, Jesus concludes by sending him back home, saying, don't even enter the village. Like, not your town, but as in, don't go into the town square. It's kind of his way of saying, don't tell people what's happened. 
Keep this to yourself. Another hint that this man wasn't blind from birth. How is that a hint? Because remember when he was coming out of the village, Jesus had to guide him out. Let's turn left here. Let's turn right here. Be careful of this pothole. Just Jesus guided him out. If this guy had been blind from birth, didn't know what his home looked like, didn't know how to get home, it would be pretty cruel to say to this guy, all right, off you go. Go find, where's my home? I don't know what my house looks like. But clearly, uh, it wasn't congenital. Jesus sends this guy home. And then that's how today's passage ends, with Jesus saying, don't tell anyone. Now, I've got to make a confession. Uh, I was in the events team meeting this morning, and I opened my iPad, and I realized from this point onwards, my sermon didn't save. It's on my laptop at home. So let's see how we go. Uh, I prayed a lot before this service. Uh, but I have three points that I want us to consider uh, as we come to the end of this sermon. The first point is that you have to pray. Now, we don't know whether the group that brought this blind man to Jesus were his friends or his family. Uh, but their actions, what they do, should be commended. They brought their blind friends. And if we consider the details of this account, we notice that this blind man doesn't ask Jesus for help. Why? Probably because he doesn't know who Jesus is and probably because he doesn't believe that Jesus could heal him. But we see the friends. What do we see them do? We see them not only bring their friend to Christ, but what else do they do? They beg. They beg on his behalf. And there is a word that we refer to that describes this kind of begging behavior. It's called intercession. They intercede on their friend's behalf. They beg for their friend, not just to encounter Christ. They've, he's encountered him. They've brought their friend to Christ. He's encountered him, but they don't want just that. Sharing the gospel is important. Making disciples is important. Having an accountability partner is important. Evangelism is important. But what we find in today's passage is that equally as important, if not more important, is our intercession as believers. Intercessory prayer. None of that is any use at all if it's not coupled by our intercessory prayer for the unbelieving world. Now, if you go into the FLM room, I know that the people in the different teams that are serving have seen the FLM room. If you haven't gone into the FLM room, uh, in one of the rooms, we do have like a mini library that we're setting up. Each week, I'm bringing a bit of books to fill up that bookshelf. You are more than welcome to come in. If you want to take a book, if you want to keep a book, I don't care. Um, but have a look at the bookshelf. You might find the book you like. Um, but there is one book that I'm going to bring in at some point. And it was written by probably one of the most amazing men of God of the 1800s. His name was R.A. Torrey. Reuben Archer Torrey, I think it was. He was an American evangelist in the 1800s. And he wrote, in my opinion, the greatest book on prayer in the last 200 years. 
Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll say the greatest. That, that's how good it is. It's called How to Pray. Uh, not, not as creative with the title. How to Pray. Um, it's actually very hard to get. I'm, I'm actually going to have a dig through. I used to have a copy. I'm hoping I've got one at home that I can slot onto the bookshelf. If I don't, if you go on Amazon.com.au, they're selling it for $1 on Kindle. $1 to invest in your eternity. Uh, I encourage you guys to buy it if you get a chance. Uh, but I'll try to get a copy into the FLM library. But R.A. Torrey says about the church that doesn't pray. He says, we are too busy to pray. And because we're too busy to pray, we're too busy to have power. We have a great deal of activity, but we accomplish very little. Many services, but few conversions. Much machinery, but few results. Uh, I like the old guys. They don't mince their words when it comes to the state of the church. And so we have to remember that we can have all the zeal in the world. We can put in all the hard work, all the activities. The, the vision team can meet frequently, like on a weekly, daily basis. We can have, have all the right words to say, to convince someone to come to Christ. But followers of Jesus have a duty and a responsibility to lift other people up in prayer, in intercession. Why? Why is that so important? Why not just bring someone to church and let them hear Pastor Jay preach and Elsa lead in worship? Why can't that be enough? Because prayer, whilst it is a lot of things, it's the understanding. It's our acknowledgement that at the end of the day, whilst we might be human agents used in the mission of salvation, ultimately it is God's power. It is God himself that saves this person. Anyone can bring people to church. You know, my, when I've been in youth ministry for ages, and my students, I remember, it was kind of cute, but it was like, they thought evangelism was bring them to church so Pastor Jay can talk to them. Um, bringing someone to church isn't hard. Like even my work colleagues, if I tell them we're going to have Korean barbecue at church, all my white friends will be at church and they love Korean barbecue. They will be at church on Sunday if they have free Korean barbecue. In the same way, it's possible to bring someone to encounter Christ. We saw it in today's passage. The friends brought their blind mate to encounter Christ, but encountering Christ isn't enough. In the eight chapters that we've seen throughout Mark's gospel, we see many people that have encountered Christ. The Pharisees encountered Christ. Judas encountered Christ throughout his entire three-year ministry. But that wasn't enough for Judas, was it? It's the power of God through intercessory prayer that makes the encounter more than just an encounter. It's intercessory prayer that makes that encounter salvific. We don't have the authority to wield the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not like Harry Potter where we like point a wand and zap, that person's saved. We don't have that power because we're not God. That's the reality. But what we do have through the power of intercessory prayer is the power to gain an audience with God. That our words would make it into the ear of the Most High God 
that this God, the creator of the universe, would hear what we have to say when we lift another person up in prayer. To intercede for people, not just to bring them to religion, not just to piety, not just for an encounter with Christ, but a salvific, life-transforming encounter with Christ where they're never the same again. You don't have the power to wield the Holy Spirit, but you have the power of prayer to pray to a God who is willing to move for his people, who is willing to move for his glory and his kingdom. You know, I've met so many people that say, I've prayed and I prayed and I prayed, and I didn't see God move in these areas of their life. And usually when I, when I ask them, what did you pray about? Usually something selfish. Like, oh, I want this girl to go out with me. She's the it girl, and I've been like dreaming about it. Like, or like, oh, I want this assignment that I've submitted that I've done no work, but somehow I want to get a high distinction in this assignment. Like, no, why don't you pray for the things that God promises to answer? God promises that he will build his kingdom. God promises that his kingdom will be fulfilled. You pray and align your prayer with God's will. You'll start seeing crazy things start to happen. People coming to Christ that you thought would never, ever come to Christ. But you have to pray. We have a responsibility to pray. pray. It is disobedient not to pray. Point number two, not everyone is saved in the same way. Uh, we can commend and praise the actions of the friends in today's passage, uh, but they have a misunderstanding that I mentioned earlier. They think that there is a secret formula or an order or a routine to tap into healing. They think it's touch, just need a touch, Jesus, to get healed. And sometimes we have a misunderstanding about the way Jesus saves. Because Jesus does not save everyone in the same way. For some people, it's, they're going to have a dramatic encounter with Christ. They're going to look like spiritually they've been hit by a truck and they're just never the same again. For me, my encounter, my salvation encounter with Christ happened on the bus to work. It was a 45-minute bus ride and my life changed forever. On the bus. I got on the bus at Parramatta an unbeliever, an atheist, I got off the bus just in tears, repenting and promising to place my faith and my life in his hands. For some people, it's going to be dramatic. But then for other people, maybe not as dramatic. You know, in Korean, there's that saying, you grew up in the church. And a lot of people are like this, where it's just a gradual way that you come to Christ. Everyone is different. For some, it's quick. For others, the Holy Spirit will slowly chip away at that person's heart over the course of days, weeks, months and years until the walls are broken down and Christ conquers that person forever. But everyone is different. Even in today's passage, we see healing in different formats. You know, in other, other you know, preceding chapters, we saw healing instantly. But in today's passage, it happens in two stages. Throughout you know, the, the Gospels and the book of Acts, we find the apostles. How long does it take for them to get it? Like, they're, like I mentioned, they're a bit slow. But then you have guys like the apostle Paul in Acts chapter 9. Instant. Everything just clicks in an instant. He has his dramatic encounter. Everyone is different. And you need to bear this in mind when we do our evangelism. Because not everyone's going to respond to like 
Bible bashing, hellfire preaching. If you don't repent, you're going to burn in hell for all eternity. Everyone is different. Some people might respond to that. I think I was one of those people that respond very well to that. Other people, like my sister, is like, oh, just shut up. I don't want to hear that. But one of the ways we discern, it goes back to intercessory prayer. Because one thing you'll find as you intercede and pray for others isn't so much that God will change that person, which he will, it's that God changes you. God changes you as a person. God changes you in your approach to that person. God gives you wisdom in how to speak to that person and God will create opportunities and create an opening for you to speak to that person. Because let's be real, sometimes evangelism can feel very, very awkward. You don't want to be that guy where you're like talking about sports. You're at the World Cup watching the quarterfinal and then at halftime you're like, do you think you're saved? What do you think about it? Would you like to receive Jesus? No. You pray for an opportunity. And if you pray for that, God will create a window of opportunity for you because not everyone is saved in the same way. Final point. You need Christ every step of the way. You need Christ every step of the way. And I have to make a confession. Um, Towards the end of my time at Bible College, um, I, I did a preaching subject. And I think one of the hard things about preaching isn't preparing the sermon, is that it shapes the way you hear other people's sermons. Like if you do a preaching class, they teach you the formula that you could use as a template to build sermons, you know, the way to read a passage, unpackage a passage. And at men's conference, I did a seminar on you know, helpful ways to unpackage you know, a, a passage in Scripture. But it's very easy for it to become an academic process. And one of the, like, the conventions I want to make is that there's times where I hear sermons, it's like instead of realizing that this is God's word, God's living word, that God, the living God, is speaking through the words that this guy is preaching from the pulpit. It's like you, you analyze the way he packaged his sermon. Oh, I wouldn't have done it like that. Oh, why did he structure it in this way? Or why did he use this illustration when it doesn't really tie in? And you kind of judge it. And sometimes we do that as well because, you know, when it comes to salvation, we, we make this mistake that we look at it like the ABCs that you get Christ at the beginning. Christ saves you from your sins, declares you innocent, cleansed, a child or a daughter, like son or a daughter of God, and then everything else is just, you're on your own. Roll up your sleeves and do the best you can for Jesus. That's religion. That's not the gospel. I mentioned that at the heart of the gospel, it's not about piety, it's not about religion, it's not about tick box rule-keeping. At the heart of Christianity is not piety, but a person. And the reason I've made this final point is because I want to reiterate to you guys, you never, ever, ever, ever outgrow your need of Christ. You know, a lot of theologians, when they look at today's passage, they, you know, I read a few commentaries and they give a few theories about why they think this healing occurred in two stages. 
Jesus could have healed this person instantly. Why did it occur in two stages? And they give a lot of you know, theories. I think it was because of this. I think it was so that because you know, this person who was blind, if he suddenly sees the sun, it's going to hurt his eyes. So Jesus stretched out and prolonged the healing so that he'd get adjusted to the sun. You know, a lot of theories. I don't find many of them convincing. convincing. But I think as that person was healed across in two stages, remember this guy had no faith, no hope. He didn't believe Jesus could heal him. He never asked Jesus to heal him because he didn't believe. But Jesus heals him just enough so that for the first time in his life, no doctors were able to help him up until this point. His family, friends, nothing, no medicine could help him. But after that first stage, for the first time in his life, He's able to see light. And in that moment, a seed of hope is planted, isn't it? Because he recognizes, wow, this, this, this guy can help me. I doubted. I didn't even ask or beg. But he's demonstrated that this guy is able to restore my healing. And he comes in the first stage where it's a partial healing. And because that seed is planted, he understands I've got partial healing now. I can see, but it's out of focus. I see people, but it looks like trees. He's not going to think, oh, the answer now is for me to heal the rest and you know, regain the focus myself. No. After the first stage of healing, he recognizes Jesus got me this far. The only way I'm going to get perfect 2020 vision is not through piety, but a person, Christ. You never, ever outgrow your need for Christ. And for so many of us, we're, we're so content by just getting halfway, getting to that first stage, living a spiritually out-of-focus life and thinking, that's enough. But that's not the life that the gospel calls us to. That's not the life Christ calls us to. Christ calls us to live with spiritual clarity, to know what God desires of us and to live it out in clarity. Not to be like Israel where they come out of the exodus, come out of Egypt and just like be happy to just pitch your, your tent in the wilderness. But there is a promised land that God desires them to press on towards. And in the same way, we're not called to just be spiritually out of focus believers. But we're called as kingdom builders and kingdom workers to intercede, to have spiritual clarity, to come to Christ, to understand that we need Christ, not just at step one, but every day of our lives until this kingdom is fulfilled and we enter into eternity. You never outgrow your need of Christ. So those are the three points I want to conclude on today. You have a duty to pray. There is no excuse, no legitimate reason as a follower of Jesus not to pray. You have a duty to pray. And as a shameless plug, we have a prayer meeting at the end of this month for you to come and pray. If there is someone that you want to intercede for and you're struggling to pray at home, come and pray with us. Prayer feels more powerful and just something different about praying with brothers and sisters. So number one, you have a duty to pray. Number two, remember not everyone is saved in the same way. So pray for wisdom, pray for opportunities. And point number three, you need Christ every step of the way. The moment you think you can do this on your own, the moment you think, okay, Christ is step one, I need to move on to bigger things, something's gone wrong. And you need to reflect and reevaluate.
Let's pray. Father, I, I thank you firstly that you allowed me uh, to finish off this sermon. Thank you that you gave me the words uh, and to recall what I studied this week. Uh, and Lord, I, I pray for each and every one of us that you would in, implant in us uh, not just a heart for intercession, but our understanding of the urgency of intercession. This world is not going to be here forever. Our lives are not forever. Time is running out. So Lord, I pray for all of us that we would recognize and take up the responsibility, this mantle of intercession. That we would pray for the unsaved, we would pray for opportunity and wisdom. We would pray for spiritual clarity that we would never be satisfied with a spiritually out-of-focus relationship or a walk. But that we would seek not a partial but a full restoration. So that we understand and what we share with others is in our endeavors to help them understand is that we need Christ every step of the way otherwise we're left with nothing but tick box religion so Lord I pray that we would understand the worth of Christ his power and the grace that he extends out to all of us. Because our God is not a stingy God. He lavishes in abundance. And all we need to do is call upon his name. And ask that he would move. And it's in Jesus name we pray. Amen. <laughs>